1: Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of smoking audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. at and
0: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW, reward prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Glue force. If it doesn't
2: work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Softwave Radio. Special operations military news and straight talk with the guys in the community.
3: Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to Soft Rep Radio. I'm your host today, Steve Balistrary. Soft Rep Radio on time, on target. We have a tremendous guest with us today, somebody that we were all following his case for uh quite a while and uh we have clint lawrence former lieutenant actually former captain in the united states army and we'll get into all that in just a second but clint was unfairly dealt a big blow by the army and he was uh, un, uh i would say unlawfully convicted of a war crime in afghanistan but luckily after six years of spending time in fort leavenworth he was uh, pardoned by President Trump, and we're going to talk about all that, and we're going to talk about his case. We're going to talk about he just wrote a book called uh, Stolen Honor, and we're going to talk about that as well. And, but before we do that, let's welcome Clint to Software Radio. Clint, thank you. Thank you very much for taking the time today and uh, talking with us.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Steve. It's really good to be here. It's really an honor to be on the show.
3: Well, it's an honor for us, and we're so glad we're talking to you as a free man. Uh, we were talking offline just a minute ago, and you're getting ready to start law school, and uh, you know you're, you were talking about seeing deer in the distance, and that's the kind of atmosphere we want you to be seeing, not the inside of a, a cell. But uh, let's get into it a little bit. Uh, I, I want you to fill in our listeners about your early military career, because you started as an enlisted man um and you know we'll just talk briefly about that fill us in about your early military career yeah so
1: i, I always wanted to be a state trooper uh, all throughout high school and uh i thought that was what i was going to do and then uh you know nine eleven happened and i thought that you know maybe i should go join the military and contribute and so that's what i did and and i i intended on just doing a couple of years and then you know getting out and then going back to texas and being a state trooper um but you know i i got in the army and and uh I, I enlisted as an e1 uh and and i uh i just loved it i i, I liked the camaraderie and and the uh the way that um the army you know at least the units that i was in initially um we we had a brotherhood and we we took care of each other and we always had each other's back and i think that's something that is missing in the military these days um and it's definitely missing in general society uh, these days um so i, I, I worked up um to I became an n c o you know just like everybody does and um and when i once i made e six i i went to um um r o t c down at university of north texas and um did that for a couple of years and and transitioned over to to be a, a an officer and went on to um Fort Benning. you know i had stopped by there and uh, went up to Fort Bragg and and then to Afghanistan. So um, then from Afghanistan, went to Fort Leavenworth and then, um, and the rest is history. Yeah.
3: Yeah. You know, um, in your book, you talked about after being an NCO and going to college, I did that. I I got, uh, when I was still an NCO, the army let me go back to school for, for a bit. And it's a big transition, isn't it? I mean, when you're used to you know being in the army and then you go back to the college life it's it's kind of a weird feeling isn't it?
1: it it is um and one of the things that that i can remember is um uh, sitting in the classrooms you know i would always sit in the back and just kind of you know watch everybody and everything and you know there were a couple of obnoxious uh former <laughs> marine guys that would would always talk about their military service in classes and stuff but um so you know, I would always just sit there and kind of think to myself, like you know, there are, are very few people in this classroom that understand um, the the real threat that that you know is being presented to them. That you know, they don't even have to uh, to ever encounter because there are so many people, men and women out there that are that are stopping it before it ever ever gets to our shores. So yeah, it's definitely a um, it's something that um, the perspective of of uh, all of these. Yahoo's, you know, running around in the streets of Portland right now and, and, uh, you know, all these socialist type people, they really just don't understand, um, what life is really all about. And, you know, thankfully they have people like you and people like, you know, a lot of your listeners who, who they take the brunt of that. And, um, so, so those Yahoo's don't have, they don't have to ever worry about it. So yeah, it was definitely a, 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 um, an experience, um, you know, I never really transitioned back into trying to be a civilian. I couldn't do it. They're just, um, you know, they're just not my speed of people. Um, but you know, there were, I met some good people there at North Texas, um, and some, you know, some people, a couple of them, um, supported me. the ones I was closest with, supported me throughout the whole um, Leavenworth ordeal, and and uh, came, even came to visit me there. And um, yeah, just some really great people. Um, one of them, you know, interesting enough for, for your audience. Um, one of them, uh, one of the women that I went to, to ROTC with there became one of the first, uh, women to graduate from ranger school. So I know that might be a a sore topic with some of your listeners, but (laughs) I thought that was just, I thought that was really cool. Um, yeah,
3: I I remember reading that in your book. I thought that was awesome. I mean, you talk about a small world and uh, we're we're all kind of interconnected and, uh, you know, because that was big news there for a while there. And now we just had the first female graduate from SF training. And, uh, oh, my God, there's uh, there's a lot of hard feelings among the a, a lot of the SF guys with that. I'm of the yeah. attitude, I, I wasn't there. Uh, I didn't put her through training. But I know somebody that knows somebody who, who was a SF instructor. And I, from what I was told, She not only met the standard, she exceeded them. They said physically she was in a a much bigger stud than a lot of the dudes were. So as far as I'm concerned, you know, these women who make it through Ranger training and now SF, hats off to them. It's going to be tough for them because we know that, you know, there's that male kind of dominated society. And guys don't like people treading on their turf. But I I think it's awesome. And I I found that part of your book really fascinating, as well as another area which resonated with me. You talked about going through summer training with some of the West Point officers, and I thought that was hilarious because I've uh, experienced that from the other side. I taught uh, a uh, class one summer jump school to West Pointers and uh, fill our listeners in on some of that. I thought that was great.
1: Well, I'm sorry I had to deal with them. <laughs> uh, I've got I've, – I've got, I can count on one hand the, the amount of uh, West Point officers that, that I could trust um, and, and that I know would have my back and, and that has – or that have had my back. And um, you know, that's, that's what it all boils down to me is, is loyalty and brotherhood. And so at the end of the day, um, you know, if you're in uniform, whether it's a police uniform or a military uniform, you've got plenty of people who are willing to be your enemy so the the men and women next to you to your left and right do not need to volunteer for that position so the way i look at it is um brotherhood is, is is something that's very important to being able to do your job and that's what my book is all about and you know i you know i appreciate steve that that you guys took a, an interest in uh giving me the opportunity to talk to your audience here and i really do because i think the people in your audience understand brotherhood and so, you know, in terms of um, the, the way that the military is today um, and in terms of the West Point guys that we were talking about uh, just a minute ago, um, they espouse that, um, that left-leaning um, position that uh, brotherhood doesn't exist anymore and that the only thing that matters is that we, quote-unquote, do the right thing. And, you know, they get to define what the right thing is. And so, you know, I, I'll just say up front, and I've said this, you know, a, a million times because I sort of have to say this, um, that, you know, I don't think anybody should ever get go into a combat zone and just do whatever they want and just disregard the rules. Um, and I think your audience probably agrees with that. Um, we've, we've, gotta have rules. We've, we've got to have uh, rules. We've got to, you know – represent america well and we have to do that for the men and women who've died before us wearing that uniform and for for our sons and daughters who will put that uniform on we've got to make sure that we always respect that and i think you know for you know by and large absolutely by and large the the men and women that that wear that uniform um overseas and on our streets here the police officers here on our streets you know they they do the uniform well um, and so, you know, I think that uh, in terms of those West Point guys, the reason why I have so much animosity towards them is because they uh, believed in, during the Obama administration, they believed that nonsense, that um, it's okay to throw somebody under the bus as long as it gets you promoted or as long as I get my general star. And I don't, I don't believe in that. I think that, you know, the right thing is something that doesn't ever change. And that is... Um, you wake up every single day and you try to be the best person that you can possibly be. and if something terrible happens to you, you don't cry about it. you put your boots back on and you keep moving. and you know that's something that you know uh, those, those West Point people, they want to sit around and talk about it all day. Well, how could we have done this better? How could we have done that? They want to sit around and they expect you to cry about it and And one of them, you know amazingly, one of the lieutenant colonels actually asked me. He said, uh, "I don't understand why you're not more upset about this. Why? Why are you?" He he, he made the the comment that I might have been aloof, and you know, I had to go and go to the internet cafe and look up the word "aloof," Um, and and so I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, "So this guy wants me to cry over spilled milk, and that's just not going to happen. That's not the way I was raised, and I don't think that's the way the American people expect our military to be." And so that's just, I think that kind of gives you a little bit of insight um, into why I have so much um, frustration toward the, the people that come out of West Point. They're just too left-leaning, and I I just don't get it. I don't understand how that can happen, and I think it's indoctrination. Um, but um, I think a lot of them meet their platoon sergeants, and they meet their senior NCOs, and they uh, gradually start to bring them over to, you know, at least to the center and give them a little bit of sense. Um but unfortunately there are a lot of them that don't. And those are the people that, that I've identified in the book as my uh enemies and, and the enemies of uh of brotherhood and, and, and of the men and women who you know deserve to have a brotherhood.
3: Yeah and with that I want to get into the you know the meat of the subject which was that incident that happened in Afghanistan because you know, when you're at first glance, I mean, I remember reading about this as it, you know, the, the court martial transpired and so much of the material wasn't presented, even though it was in the hands of the army. And I want to get into that, but, uh, you know, you were in Afghanistan for quite a while. You were on the battalion staff, uh, in the talk. And then, uh, the lieutenant of a, a line platoon that was at a strong point. He was wounded in an IED attack and the battalion commander chose you to go down there and take it over. And that, I think that's the important thing that people need to realize right away. They had a choice of a bunch of different lieutenants and they chose you. And that was something that came out later on. I, I remember the battalion Sergeant major making a, a statement to the fact of that they could have chosen anyone they chose you and um uh, so let, let's get into this because explain to our listeners uh you know as quickly as you can i mean we could probably talk for a couple of days on this but um you know the situation how you came to be in command down at, at that strong point and then uh how things transpired yeah and thank you
1: for mentioning the sergeant major he's just a great dude he, he had my back the entire time and Unfortunately, it got overruled um, by the, you know, the the butt kissers um, that were uh, senior officer rank. But Sergeant Major Gustafson, just an amazing guy. Um, I I wish all leaders were like him. So, uh, you know, to your question, um, what actually happened, just real briefly, um, we were— uh, on a foot patrol, and it was a joint u s Afghan foot patrol with the afghan um army contingent up front, and it was a squad plus size element. We were crossing a road. um I was on my radio talking to the helicopters and giving them stuff to do, um and at the same time, I was trying to navigate an obstacle um, and I was uh, as I was you know negotiating this obstacle, I was on the blind side of this obstacle one of my soldiers yells back and says, you know, he's frantically freaking out this, this soldier is. And and he's um, telling me that there's a motorcycle coming at a higher rate of speed. And, you know, I know in the back of my mind that I've got half of my men across the road and half of them still on this side of the road. And there's some, you know, obviously actively crossing the road. So I know that we're in a vulnerable position. And so, you know, this, this soldier who, who, um, yells back and, you know, is asking me, you know, if he can fire. I I know he is someone who has experience. I know that he is someone who had been a former civilian police officer. So I know that this is a more mature guy. He's a private, I get it, but he's a more mature guy, and I know that because I had sat down with all of the guys when I first got there and interviewed each and every one of them, and I wanted to get to know them as much as I could. And, you know, I'm not some, you know, brilliant, you know, leader or anything. I just copied the people that I look up to when I was a private. And I had a staff sergeant and then a captain do the same thing to me when I was a private. And I really liked that. So I just copied it. I think that's what we all do. And we take little bits and pieces from here and there, and we try to make it into who we are. So we're, as we're crossing this road, I have a couple of things in my mind, and um, the next thing you know, this is all happening in, in a matter of seconds, like very, very quickly. Um, the next thing you know, uh, the Afghan army contingent starts firing, and I don't know who's firing. And you know, a lot of people can they can tell the difference in what an AK-47 is and an M16, and an M4, and I can't. Right? I just don't pay that close enough attention. Right? And I may I may be able to if, if I had more experience with it, but you know I, I was pretty green. So um, I I hear people up front firing. Um, I don't know who it is firing. Um, I'm assuming that it is the Afghans because none of my guys have have told me that they're firing or have asked permission to fire until that very moment when the guy turned around and and started asking for permission to fire. So. Um, I told him yes and here's what I'm thinking I'm thinking there's a hundred things going through my mind at the time and you know I'm thinking to myself I'm the the new guy I've got next to no combat experience I'm taking over for these guys who have been here several months already and have a ton of experience much more than me and this guy is turning around and asking me if he can defend himself and so who am I to come in and tell somebody like that that they can't defend themselves and so I say yes right And so he takes a shot at the motorcycle. Now, let me remind everybody, I can't see the motorcycle because I'm still trying to get over this wall. And uh, so, you know, this is all happening very, very quickly. And it's not like I have time to actually, you know, uh, litigate and, you know, be deliberate. You just don't have time. And, you know, that's one of the things that came out in my court-martial. And and one of the things my lawyer kept on saying is is, – Did you expect him to, um, you know, to hold an inquiry or to, to, you know, litigate like a lawyer would? There's no time for that. And I told my soldier, yes, he could fire. He uh, fired, uh, and he did not fire effectively. He missed. Um, And, you know, I don't blame him. It was a very, you know, uh, kinetic situation. It was happening really fast, and, and there was a lot of stuff going on. Um, and so I told, you know, when I went, once I started hearing somebody else fire up front and I started kind of processing what was going on, I was like, all right, I need to tell everybody just to chill out and we need to take control of the situation. So I got on the radio and, and told everybody to stop firing. And then I ordered the gun truck, which I knew had an overwatch position to take a precision shot and fire to make sure that we cut down on um, collateral damage. Cause if we've got a bunch of guys that are, uh, on the ground, um, you know, a, bu- a bunch of riflemen on the ground, whether they're Afghan Army or or American Army, and everybody's opening fire. I think that's less, uh, that's more of a collateral damage concern than um, when you have a, uh, you know, a guy at the end of a, uh, behind a 240 Bravo that's mounted on a, a gun truck, with you know, he's at an elevated position. He's got, I think, he's got a better position to fire. So I ordered him to fire. Um, So essentially I was sent to Fort Leavenworth for uh, what was 20 years initially um, for issuing that order. Um, Right.
3: And And I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh, I just wanted to let our listeners know that the Afghans were well aware of what happens when you approach a U.S. unit, either on foot or in vehicles at a high rate of speed on motorcycles. Am I correct?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know there was a, there was contention in my uh court martial I'm reluctant to call it a trial because it really was kind of like a, a kangaroo court it was more of a um of administrative proceeding because they had already decided what uh, what they wanted done before it even started um so we were just kind of there to check the box but um so you know in terms of uh the what the Afghans uh By that time, it was 2012. So we're talking 11 years of dealing with American units in various different forms and and NATO units in various different forms. And on top of that, the road that uh, they were trying to go down was one that we had uh, put concertina wire up on on either side, triple stranded concertina wire, and we put up signs that that, so this is our road. This is restricted for military and police use only. And the reason for that is because that was our lifeline road, so we only had one truck that we could use to shuttle back and forth to where my um uh, senior uh, headquarters was uh my parent headquarters was and so you know we were kind of uh we were down my my strong point was kind of down by itself um in in the kind of the thick of things, and um we had to, to have a way to go back and forth and shuttle somebody just in case we got somebody get hurt or um you know, we need to get supplies or go to some sort of dumb meeting or something. We we would use that road. Um, so we wanted to make sure that road was always clear. So we had signs up and we had Constantino wire up. So the guy was trying to go down that road. So you know, there are several different factors that I'm taking into consideration, and that's one of them. So uh, you know, after at that time being you know interacting with American forces for 11 years at that point, um, you know, it would be a uh, a reasonable assumption uh, that most of the people in Afghanistan would know how to deal with American forces, and that is when they tell you to stop or they shoot at you you probably need to stop um, now look i'm I, like like you said, I'm in law school, so you can't assume anything um, so uh, I get that, but I just want you know especially in this book, you can kind of see where my my thinking was um, and there's it's it's not a simple decision to make, and it's not a an easy decision to make to to take a human life, um, but to me, um, if it comes down to me protecting my troops or um, them possibly uh, coming up and and detonating some sort of device, dropping a grenade at our feet, or you know maybe having maybe having C four the gas tank of the motorcycle itself, whatever. There's so many different possibilities. If it comes down to them or my troops, I'm going to protect my troops. Um, and and that's just you know I, I'll go back to Fort like more for another twenty years if I have to make the same decision over with. It's it, to me that's you know you, you've got to uh, you you've got to put a if you're going to send American troops into a combat zone you've got to be able to protect them and you know if you're if you're going to send these these young officers into um, and put them in charge of them then you got to let them make decisions on on the on the ground and you know one of the things that. Uh, I talk about in the book a lot is, is the micromanagement that was going on um, where, you know, the White House was making decisions uh, directly, you know, battlefield decisions that we should have been making um, and, and micromanaging to such an extent that we our hands were tied. So I, I think there's there's just a lot of different things that go into, you know, what happened with my case. And, and listen, Steve, I don't, I don't want anyone to ever look at me as a victim because I'm not and I can't stand people with that victim mentality. Um but there is something the reason why I wrote this book is because there is something wrong when something that happened to me happens to a member of the US military there's something wrong with the system and uh I wrote the book so I could try to uh get exposure so so people would understand that stuff like this happens and uh and that's another reason why I'm going to law school is I'm going to try to fix it
3: right and you know when the this is where like at, you know right at the time of the firing This is when everything should have been cut and dried. I mean, uh, from reading, you know, the transcript from your lawyers, I read the book, uh, the two men that were killed on on the motorcycle, a third got away. You know, uh, they were immediately characterized by the Army who did an immediate investigation as civilians. But the fact was that... These guys, uh, the Army uses what they call, biome- for our listeners out there that may not be aware, the Army uses what they call biometrics, and that's the, how they test for bomb makers. And all of these guys had biometric data on them. They had left fingerprints or DNA on bomb components, on IEDs. All three of them had. And the Army kind of blocked that. And they blocked out their names during the investigation, and they wrote And uh, they crossed out their names in the charging documents and wrote in pen a male of apparent Afghan descent, because if they had their names on there, they would have been identified as Afghan bomb makers. And this is where this whole trial comes right off the rails. And it's amazing that our military allowed this to happen. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off there. I just wanted to fill in our... uh, Our listeners on that that little pit but tell us more uh, how then how everything transpired for you
1: yeah Steve you've obviously done your homework I appreciate you bringing that up because you know one of the things that really just kind of shocked me to my core is uh, the 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 DNA evidence the biometric you know the epithelials and the DNA um, evidence that they found you know on these bombs that these guys the guys that we uh, that I ordered killed, and that that uh, the one of the guys that you know he we just shot him in the arm. Um, you know that wasn't my preference, but uh, you know my soldiers were a little bit more to the left than I was. Um, so look, uh, these guys. There were six members of the United States Army and the United States Marines who were killed with the same. But I'm trying to be careful here because my lawyers are on me about making sure the facts are right and everything. But there were six members of of the U.S. military who were killed by people associated – closely associated with these, quote, civilians, unquote civilians. So the Army is saying these guys are civilians, but these guys uh, have made bombs that have maimed and killed American soldiers and Marines. And to me, that's something that's not cool. And it 's not cool for the Army to say that immediately the next day, Steve, the next day the Army was saying these guys were civilians, and you can't anybody that has any experience with the military and the military's investigative processes and so on and so forth, you know flat out the military doesn't get much done in terms of investigating and and, and paperwork and all this stuff in twenty four hours. It just does not happen right There's so many you know senior officers' butts that have to be kissed before you know, it can actually get down to the meat and potatoes of actually what happened. And so the way that uh, you characterize that I think is extremely important Um, because here we have, let me just be very, you know, clear and concise. Um, Here we have an American unit, my unit, that engaged with Taliban members, members of the Taliban who had American blood on their hands, we killed those Taliban, and within 24 hours, my own chain of command, the American Army chain of command, charged me and some of my men with murder of civilians. Now, just let that sink in, right? So I was sent to Fort Leavenworth for, quote-unquote, murdering civilians, right? And, you know, granted, I didn't – pull the trigger i didn't ever even use my weapon i just used my radio you know but look i'm not ever going to try to put the blame on the the soldiers who served under me for 72 hours i'm not going to do that because they were serving under my command it was my responsibility and the only thing i said in my court martial was that i take full responsibility for the actions of my men under my command because that's the way it should be well i was the only officer there so if anybody's going to prison and I've said this a million times and I've said this, my lawyers hate it when I say this, but if I'm gonna if anybody's gonna go to prison it's gonna be me. And so, you know, lo and behold, the the uh the army uh said bet and sent me to prison for twenty years. Um so um look, I, you know, there there are so many different things that went wrong um, in, in my uh court martial and but you know, and one of the things that I write about in the book and I think this just really shocked me was the first day of my court-martial, the first day, um, there was an Army captain who came up to me, and I've never seen this guy before. He came up to me, and he said, hey, Clint, I need to get your PT sizes, and, and that was back when we still had the gray and black PTs. And uh, I'm like, well, why? You know, why do you need my PTs? And he's like, well, because when you get transferred to Fort Leavenworth, you're going to be in PTs. Now, listen, this was on the first day. We hadn't even started the court-martial yet. Right. So before we even started the court martial, the army had sent somebody. The chain of command had sent somebody over to get my PT sizes because they had already determined that I was going to Fort Leavenworth. Now I, th- I think it's very important that you, your listeners, understand um, because look, I've always been a law and order type guy, right? I, 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 you know, I'm a thin blue line type guy. I support the police. I love the police. I – you know, I, I'm going to law school, for God's, for God's sake. I, I completely understand and, and support law and order and people doing the right thing and following the rules, right? That is why I'm so passionately um, involved and, and, and advocating for change of the military justice system because it's not a justice system. It's an administrative procedure, uh, proceeding, and, you know, they, they operate under the guise of a justice system. And, yeah, they walk in and they wear the, – the judge wears a, a black robe, um, and, and, you know, they have prosecutors and, and defense attorneys, and, you know, they've been to law school and this, this, and this. But at the end of the day, everybody works for the man, and, and that's the commanding general or, or whatever they call the admiral that's in charge. That's the, the convening authority. And when, whenever everybody works for the same person and everybody knows that that same person wants a certain outcome, then what do you think is going to happen? And so, you know, that's the, one of the things that, you know, I'm actually uh, – for one of my law professors right now, I'm actually writing a paper to that uh, – on on that subject, which is, um, you, you know, there are certain things in the military justice system that, that have to change. And, you know, one of the key things is you've got to take it away from the commanders, the commanding generals. You've got to take it away from these people who um, – you know, if, if, if I, Clint Lawrence, if I had stayed in the Army for 40 years, I would probably – have been at least a Fulberg colonel or a, a brigadier general or something, right? Now, that does not qualify me to just determine whether or not a criminal act has been committed or whether or not um, somebody needs to be sent to a criminal trial and potentially sent to prison for the rest of his or her life. That doesn't qualify them. They don't have any legal training. They may have a, a PowerPoint presentation here and there on you know, the commander's um, you know, responsibilities in the legal process and this, this, and that. But they haven't been to law school for three or four years. They they don't have that expertise. And so there are so many things, Steve, and the reason why I'm 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 advocating so passionately for this is because I actually went through it and I saw it. You know, we it's kinda like when you open up that closet underneath the, the stairwell and, and you shine a flashlight in there and and you see all this crap that's been in there forever and you're like, well this ain't right. Somebody's gotta clean this up. Well, that's the same thing that has to happen in the military justice system. It's got to be cleaned up, and it's got to be brought to the same level as the federal court system, and it's nowhere near that right now. Right now, Steve, what the military justice system is right now is the same one they have in North Korea and the same one they have in Russia and the same one they have in China and all these places that – you know Venezuela, all these places that we think are terrible – places with, you know, without the rule of law, where well, the same thing is happening to men and women who wear the uniform of, of the world's greatest military. And that's something that I don't think we can we can uh, abide by. I don't think it's, that's something that we can allow to happen for any longer.
2: at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply.
3: Exactly. And, you know, in your book, when you talked about that incident with the captain and your PTs, I, I went back and I reread that and I was like, did I just read that? And I had to read it again. And it was amazing because this was, again, before opening arguments had even been made, for your... Uh, for your for your court martial, they're they're already sending you to Fort Leavenworth. I mean, they made that abundantly clear. And then the judge, you know, asked if, oh, well, I I have a soccer game to go to. Can we get this trial over with? And I remember thinking, oh, then, you know, if if I'm sitting in your chair, I would automatically think the worst because obviously the the uh The die was already cast here. And, you know, I think it's important to uh, uh, for our listeners to understand the reason behind all this was because the Afghans were getting very sensitive to what they considered civilians being killed by the U.S. military, especially President Karzai. And the attitude in Washington from the very top uh, at the president's desk at that time came down through the military, they weren't going to, you know, put up with any of this. So if anyone was accused of that, they were going to throw them right under the bus.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, political correctness, um, when it takes root in the military, um, it does something real special because you have a lot of senior officers who want to get promoted to general. And so they do everything they possibly can to make their commander happy. And so if that includes under President Obama, that included being politically correct. And that is that, – that's where they took our military, and, and that's why you have situations like Benghazi happening where you had these barrel-chested freedom fighters who were ready to go. They were sitting on G and waiting on O, but they couldn't go because they had a weak stomach, a weak-kneed president and, and, and people that worked for him and President Obama. That would not allow them to do their jobs and and it's just absolutely sickening And I think people are tired of it but the problem is is the, the attention span of the American people is not very long so no uh, you know that's you know one of the reason I, I think that your podcast is so important and and the, what that what you guys do is so important is you got to keep bringing this stuff up or else people are gonna move on to something else and they're gonna forget exactly about it. And and next you, thing know, you know
3: yeah I'm sorry go ahead
1: well, next thing you know, my son or my daughter is going to be, uh, you know, subject to the same UCMJ that I was subject to, and I don't want that to happen. I I want my my kids to be able to grow up, and and join the military if they want to. I want them, you know, hopefully one of them to join the space force, right? I, I want them to be able to uh, to serve their country just like I did, and to be proud of that, and and to be, um, you know, to 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 serve in a long line. Uh, and to join the long line of great Americans that have put that uniform on, but I would be afraid to send them to the military, Steve, under these conditions. And, and I'm telling you, you know, uh, it's if you haven't if you haven't interfaced with the military justice system, if you haven't had any contact with the military justice system, good on you, good for you, right? But the second you do. You're gonna wish you never had joined the military, and I'll tell you, it's uh it's if you're a bad soldier, if you're a, a, a bad actor, then yeah, you deserve to, to, you know, to get slapped down and to be punished. But that's not what is happening exclusively in the military these days. You've got good people. There are good men sitting in Fort Leavenworth prison right now. I can think of their names. First Sergeant John Hatley is one of them. There are good men sitting in Fort Leavenworth prison right now because of president obama and you know it's it's the reason why i fight and it's the reason why i think you know everybody should be up in arms about it but here's the thing steve if if they're not african-american if they're not a black lives matter type you know socialist nonsense all that nonsense then nobody cares about them if they're in prison wrongfully and i said this on a radio show in chicago and no that's very true they, they just about booed me off the air. Was was look just because I'm a, I'm a I'm a white male who 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 was in who was who was in the military and got sent to a military prison because of some politically correct nonsense that came out of the Obama administration. Then none of the uh, none of the ACLU type people who are always you know chomping at the bits and 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 yelling and screaming all the time about letting people out of prison and this this and that. None of them people were anywhere to be found, none of them. And so, you know, it took a president like President Trump getting elected, and, and as soon as somebody told him about it, you know, he did his homework on it. But, but as soon as they told him about it, he started looking at it. But he's he's one guy, and he, he's got plenty of uh, other fights to fight. And so I think that, you know, the reason I wrote this book and the reason I think it's so important for people like you to keep speaking out is because these things are happening, and – just because the the Washington Post and the New York Times and the mainstream media are not covering it or don't care to cover it, nobody cares about it. And so you know, there are just so many people who only believe what they read or see in the mainstream media, and I feel sorry for those kind of people because there's so much stuff happening in the dark in this country that that needs to be – we need to shine a light on. And that's the reason why I wrote this book, and that's the reason why I I, I appreciate so much you, you bringing me on here.
3: Well, and, and see that, that was the whole point is because, okay, even if, you know, the Afghans complain that civilians were killed, the army does an investigation. Okay. Do an investigation, but do a real one. So, you know, they never, they never actually interviewed you. They only interviewed the soldiers that served under you. And from what I read, uh, I got a, a, something from your lawyer. Basically they, uh, they threatened all of them with UCMJ and court-martial themselves unless they made a statement, which kind of leads you to believe that, you know, they separated you from them and they basically said it's either you or those guys. So they, they kind of put that right in there. They, they blocked out the uh, you know, the identities of the Afghan bomb makers. They got a statement from the, the Lieutenant that your replacement was and you know severely wounded by an ied and you know they they lined out the areas that you know uh, where he talked about you know he would never let a motorcycle in close proximity to his 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 unit which was your platoon because of how they operate and this is a guy that i believe he lost an eye over this and then you know there was a, another uh, there was an army sigact report that said that your platoon was being scouted for an impending attack an, uh, an impending attack, and then there was another uh, individual later on who i mean uh, there was i think believe they had satellite or maybe it was a drone up above, and he reported that he, watching the Afghan motorcycle drivers that your platoon was being sighted for an ambush, and they, they right. the army had all of that material they had all of that evidence and they blocked it from your defense and that's the kind of thing that can't ever happen to us as you said this is stuff that happens in north korea not in north carolina and yeah it it was shocking to read all this that's why we we felt so strongly about it obviously we didn't go through what you did but um you know, it, it's uh, this whole, you know, court-martial should have never taken place. And, you know, if they had just done an investigation like they claimed they were doing, it would have never happened. Yeah.
1: And, Steve, I, I think you – know, I've been writing some points down as you've been talking. You've really done your homework. I appreciate that. It's really rare to have somebody do their homework these days. They usually just read whatever the <laughs> title of the article is from The New York Times, and then they just believe it because it's gospel, right? If the liberals say it's true, it must be true. So what – what you said they blocked it from – they blocked all that evidence from my defense counsel, which is true. That's, a, that's what's called a, a, a Brady violation in, in legal terms. But they also blocked it from the jury. So – the 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 majors and lieutenant colonel and colonel that the ones that were sitting on the the jury panel you know half half of them were asleep half the time to be honest with you they already knew what they were going to rule so they blocked all that information from the jury though so the jury never heard any of that information so you know how do you think they they felt about me and and, and you know they're hearing all this one sided stuff it makes me look like some kind of maniac but and another thing I'd like to one of the things you brought up and I appreciate you bringing that up is this intel, of the guy, the guy that was in charge of the uh, the blimp, he was the blimp operator, and he had all the uh, he had the the camera, the footage, literally watching these Taliban operatives as they are putting they're they're setting in a crude ambush around our position. Now look, and full disclosure, I did not know that because I couldn't see them. Uh, I didn't know that was happening at the time. Um, the Afghan Army sergeant that was there. Um, he came up to me at a certain point, and I say this in the book. He came up to me at a certain point, and he was like, "Sir, we got to go right now." And I'm like, "Well, why? You know, what what's wrong?" And he was, and "This is, you know, we were already at the end of the objective. We had already cleared through the objective. We we're already done, and we were kind of just hanging out. But that, the sergeant came up to me, and he, he he's like, "We got to go." He's like, "The Taliban are coming." So, you know, I look around, and and you know, it's the conditions are we've already achieved everything that we were sent out there to achieve. So I'm like, "All right, well, let's go." um and so you know that i think that kind of verifies what you know mr huber was saying the guy that had the camera footage of them putting in the taliban putting in the uh the ambush setting in the ambush now look i'll take on the taliban head to head any day right but at the 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 fact of the matter is that uh when you're fighting with one hand behind your back like we were in the obama administration i'm not going to put my men in harm's way unnecessarily so look and Steve, if I can just address one more thing that that the Washington Post is just ridiculous uh, they just they just did an article and they you know they have decided you know that the bottom of the barrel uh in that platoon um, that they found about the, the bottom of the barrel in that platoon, and anybody that served in the military can look at the character of the guys who who interviewed with the washington post and and they can tell what kind of soldiers they were very quickly and I've been very reticent to. Uh, I'm very reluctant to ever say anything bad about those soldiers because at the end of the day they were just as much uh screwed over by the army as i was because you said just now steve that that you know the the army threatened them with prosecution as well that's very true they actually worked up charge sheets for murder for a couple of those guys right so you know they charged me with murder they charged me with all kinds of nonsense They, they charged me with using harsh language toward Afghans, which I kind of laughed at, you know. But so, you know, but here's the thing, right? So th- it, it was very true what you just said. So they brought all of those soldiers that I had known for 72 hours. They were complete strangers to me 72 hours ago. I knew these guys for three days. They brought these soldiers in to, to the, the a tent, and they put them all around this big table, this series of tables, and they, they told them all. They gave them all sworn statements, 2823s, and they said, you're all, all going to write sworn statements right now. I was the only person not in that room. So what do you think happened? They all got on the same page, quite literally. And that's something you know I kind of write more detailed in, in my book about. So you know those guys, they didn't know me. I had been there for three days, for 72 hours, and now the Washington Post wants to come out and try to make me look like a bad person because I told Sean Hannity that I don't even remember most of their names. But look, see, I, I would challenge anybody, anybody, to. In, in the military, you meet a lot of people, right? So I would challenge anybody to go, to go back in their memory and to, to rewind eight years, to go back eight years and remember the names of 40 men that you met for three days eight years ago. It's almost impossible. Unless not you actually happening. serve, it's not going to happen. So unless you actually serve with these people for more than three days, you're not going to remember all of them. You're just not, right? I just, to be completely honest with you, they're not. Uh, they, they were not that memorable of people to me, and I know that's unpo- that, that's unpopular for me to say. But anybody that's going to turn on one of his brothers is not that memorable of a person to me. And so, to to, to put this a, a different way. And I write about this in the book, too, and I'm kind of – the gloves are kind of coming off at this point because I'm sick and tired of dealing with the Washington Post and the New York Times going over and tampering those guys, those crappy soldiers, and trying to make them feel like they're war heroes. And by the way, I can't stand it when anybody tries to call me that, right? I'm just a normal guy who was put in a really crappy situation, and I found a better way to deal with it, which is not to turn on my my brothers and sisters. So – but At the end of the day, what we have to look at here is there is a that that narrative that was started with the Obama administration. who are liberals' allies? The Washington Post and the New York Times? They continue to this day to try to make me look like some kind of you know crazy wild haired uh war criminal and they they call me that as much as they possibly can and you know I try to ignore it as much as I possibly can, but here's the thing. What these these soldiers, these few soldiers – and this is is the last point I'll make. As you can tell, I'm kind of passionate about this stuff. These soldiers who continually email the New York Times and the Washington Post and all the liberal media they can possibly get to listen to them, they were – several of them. Granted, there's only a handful of that platoon that has even – cooperated with the press at all most of them most of the 40 guys in the platoon said no i don't I don't want anything to do with this right because maybe they have a little bit of a shred of loyalty uh left in their bodies but there's a, a few of them that and, and it's just amazing to me a couple of these guys were not even there they were not even on that patrol and so what i was saying on sean hannity was was that specifically i don't remember their names because they weren't even there so you know, 8 years later they come out on this Washington Post YouTube video and I'm looking at it and I'm like, who in the hell are you? I've never seen you before. <laughs> and so just oh, just because man. you just right. So just because you were on paper assigned to that platoon doesn't give you the right to be an expert in what happened there because you weren't there. And so that's just the way that I look at it. And so but the Washington Post doesn't care about that because they can use me, Clint Lawrence, To make president donald trump look bad so that's what they're going to do and so that's what they're continuing to do and so and the last thing i'll say here steve is i've gotten over the last eight years since 2012 i have gotten thousands tens of thousands of letters and and messages from people in the military and, and members of police departments around the world there there are even military folks in the little tiny country of cyprus who are have been writing to me and giving me their support? They all support me, and they all say the same thing: this is bullshit. The guys that turned on you were cowards, 100%, right? The police officers, NYPD police officers, write to me and send me little tiny police badges and send me all kinds of like baseball caps and everything else, telling me the same exact thing. Those guys were cowards. They don't understand brotherhood. But Steve, there's a tiny little, a tiny little bit of people, and I can count on probably. Uh, both hands and both feet, the amount of people who have uh, sent me messages that are not supportive, that are saying things along the lines of, um, you're a coward, war criminal, this, this, and that. And one of them I responded to, just one. It was a a girl who sent to me a a message, and um, I wasn't doing anything at that moment, so I replied to her, and, and um, I asked her some details about the case, and she was like, "Well, I don't really know anything about the case. I just know <laughs> that I read, I, I read the title. Uh, she didn't even read the Washington Post article. She read the title of the article, and then decided that I was a war criminal. So that's uh-huh. what I'm dealing with. That's what I deal with in my daily life. And so, <laughs> you, you, you know, I talk about this a lot more in detail about the nonsense that I, I'm still dealing with um, in the book." But you know, I, I'll just say that. And, and yeah, more... I,
3: I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. the The book is released, I believe, September twenty second, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And and Steve, there's just there's a lot more at play here than law and order, than A and B led to C. There, there's a lot more than black and white here, right? There's a lot more going on here, and so that's one of the things, the reasons why I wanted to write this book. And I really appreciate you, uh, you, you actually caring about this.
3: Well, we, like I said, uh, when we learned about what was actually behind the scenes going on, because we were following the the uh, case through your lawyers, that's why we felt so strongly about it. We wrote a bunch of articles on, on this and we try to bring attention to it because, again, I, I'm going to go back to the, the battalion sergeant major. I mean, I, I look at, you know, this is a NCO with career military probably 20, 25 years to become a a battalion sergeant major. And he says, clearly the division commander, the brigade commander and the squadron commander aren't going to take responsibility. The chain of command failed this young man. They used him as a scapegoat at a time in Afghanistan when the commanding general in country was looking to hold someone accountable because of other civilian casualties that occurred in other locations. And I think that hits it right on the head. And uh, so w- I know we're kind of running short on time because you have things you have to do, but uh, I just wanted to touch on you. You went to you went to Fort Leavenworth. You did six years behind bars there. We won't get into all that right now because we're kind of short on time. But tell me the feeling when you actually learned, and uh, tell our listeners a little bit about the phone call you received when you found out well, you were I- going to be part. I'll just
1: say this, Uh, you know, so life, you know, they have a lot of these little sayings, and I can't stand it when people use these little sayings, but this one really applies. Life is what you make it, right? So when I got to Fort Leavenworth, I I, I realized that I was standing up against a, a solid concrete wall, and I knew that I could deal with it in one of two ways. I could stand there and feel sorry for myself, or I could do everything I can to get through that wall. And so that is I took the second one, and I got through that wall but but look so here's here's the the crux of the issue. There are so many Americans out there who voted for President Trump, and there are some on the left uh, one of my biggest um supporters uh while I was in Fort Leavenworth fought for me like crazy was a former air Force uh, criminal investigator who is a hardcore Democrat um. And you know she just she saw what was wrong, and uh, she read she did her homework, which is I think the discriminator. You got to do your homework. If you don't do your homework, then you then you're left to just believe whatever the New York Times says, right? So if you do your homework, you see something was wrong. So um, I, I had those people to bring me through Fort Leavenworth. There were so many thousands of people who wrote to me over the years and kept me going, and and I write about them a lot in the book about the specific ones who really motivated me. And so, you know, when I, when I, President Trump got elected, I knew that President Trump was somebody who really don't give a hoot about um, what the mainstream media says about him, um, and he doesn't really care about. Uh, he he'll ruffle feathers if 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 it's the right thing to do, and so I knew the moment that he got elected, I, I went and told one of my friends there. Uh, we were talking about it, and, and he said, "Don't don't you think President Trump is a good thing for for you?" And I, I said. Uh, well, what are you talking about? And he was like, "Well, are you serious? President Trump's going to get you out of here, man. I know he is." And so that's what really kind of got me, you know, thinking along those lines. And I started paying closer attention to the president and what he was saying, and so on and so forth. And I was like, "You know what? This guy is going to do something. He is." And so we we tried to um, focus our campaign, uh, you know, my, my freedom campaign, on uh, on trying to get my case in front of the president. And once we finally did achieve that, um, the president saw it and he did his homework. And, you know, a lot of people say things about the president. They say that he's, you know, doesn't pay close attention, he doesn't like details. That's wrong. That's absolutely wrong. I've met him twice. The man cares about people, and that is what he lives his life by. He cares about the little guy, and um, so he definitely cares about people that the Democrats don't care about. Because he sees that. And so, you know, talking to him on the phone, um, I was just sitting in my prison cell and some NCO came and got me and said, you know, you got a phone call. And I talk about this more in detail uh, in the book. But, um, you know, I, I, when I actually got on the phone with the president, um, I got the, the first impression of him was that he stops all time uh, and he, he he blocks out everything around him when he wants to focus on one thing and one person and he did that it's like he it's like he posted you know I I'm not saying he did this but this is what it seemed like it's like he posted secret service agents at his office door when he was on the phone with me and said don't let anybody in I'm I'm making a phone call and so there was no interruption it was like i had his full and undivided attention and i i could not believe that the president of the united states took you know over 10 minutes of his time to do that and, at the, and he was, you know, throughout the whole time and the vice president was there and, and, and I just thought it was just amazing. And, and, you know, you know, I talk about some of the, the fight that we had even after the president signed the pardon um, to, to still get out because the, the Pentagon was refusing to let me out. And you can read about that more in the book, but um, the, you know, talking to the president uh, and, and being able to actually meet him and, you know, he actually invited me on stage to uh, talk. And luckily I, I I'm I'm kind of a boy scout so I always have something prepared so I had a speech prepared just in case. Um so, you know, I, I, he was able he he let me have his podium for for thirteen minutes or so. Um, eleven to thirteen minutes and I just thought that was amazing. And at at some point I turned around and he's standing behind me back there with Major Matt Goldstein and uh, I asked him, I'm like, Am I good, Mr. President? Like <laughs> I don't wanna think up your time. And he's just like – he kind of just waves me off like, yeah, keep going, kid. You're doing fine. <laughs> but uh, he's just I- – I'm telling you, he's just uh, just a good dude. He's somebody who um, – and I've said this before too. He he kind of – I think he-, he knows and he realizes that he's the president and you're not the president, and so he wants to make you feel comfortable. Um, and so it- – and I think he does that because he wants you – he doesn't want, he doesn't like people kissing his butt, which I think is why the Pentagon doesn't like him, because they have a butt kissing mentality. Right? So he doesn't like it when people do that. He wants people to tell him how things actually are. And he wants people to to, to drop all the fancy nonsense and tell him exactly what's going on. And I think that's something that makes him different from from any of the other presidents. They want to hear all the fancy nonsense.
3: Well, I think that hits it right on the head. And I know you have something you have to do this afternoon. So we're going to have to, unfortunately, we'll have to cut this short, but we want to, once again, thank you for joining us. And we encourage all our uh, listeners and readers out there for soft rep, uh, buy Clint's book that's coming out. It'll be out in September. We were lucky enough to get an advanced copy of it. So we could talk about it here on the podcast it will be a quick page turner for you folks because once you start reading it, you won't want to put it down and there's a lot of things in there that are going to be very uncomfortable. I'll just leave it at that and you've heard some of them. We've we've kind of glossed over some of the stuff today just because of the time shortage. But Clint, we're so glad from all of us here at SoftRep that we're talking to you now as a free man and you're able to get back to your life and you know uh you're you're now in law school we wish you all the best and thank you once again for joining us uh we would love to do this again with you some other time
1: sure thank you Steve it was great to be on with you and i'll be around if you ever want to talk again for sure
3: all right well good luck in uh in law school i know that won't be easy um <laughs> that's that's beyond uh, some of us who are sitting here right now that's beyond my scope of things so uh <laughs> i wish you all the luck with that um, uh, but you know, uh, I, I, and I wish you all the luck with the book coming out. I think it's something people need to read. It's something people need to know about because, um, it should have never, ever happened.
1: And, uh, well, I, I agree with you. We're going to fix it. And, and I think the first, the first step toward fixing it is, is to get people to read that. So they'll know what's, what's actually happening. So I, I appreciate you having me on.
3: Okay. Well, thanks again. And, uh, We'll we'll be obviously t- talking again in the future, but uh, from all of us here at Software Rep Radio, myself, Steve Balzuri, our guest Clint Lawrence. Thank you all for listening. Uh, Soft Rep Radio on time on target. We'll be back with another podcast real soon.
2: play